Good morning. It has been a good day so far. Glad that you're here. It's already been mentioned several times, but if you're visiting with us, uh, we're really excited that you're here with us today for whatever reason. If you happen to just be checking us out, if you are in town visiting family for Thanksgiving, whatever got you here, uh, we think it's pretty great. And we're glad that you're here and hope the service has been a blessing to you and hope that the rest of it will be. In other words, I hope the next part doesn't stink is basically what I'm saying. Uh, so, and there is a risk of that. So, uh, you know, thank you, Cornerstone people, for not amening that one too heartily. <laughs> if you have your Bible, open to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, that's where we will be. Well, last week, we began the first of a six-part Christmas series called Manger Things. And, you know, it's just it's a series that is loosely based on some of the themes and some of the scenes from the hit Netflix series. Say it with me. Stranger Things. Yes, that was released last year. Everybody that has seen it, well, most everybody has loved it. So, now, I just have one question for you before we begin. Now, be honest with me. Who went home and binge-watched it over Thanksgiving break this week? Yes, all right, several of you. Several of you did. Good. I'm just going to assume the rest of you have seen it or know what it is. Uh, that's good. Yes, I knew. Uh, I had a feeling that several of you would. Got really good feedback from it last week. It uh, seems to be kind of an intriguing thing. I know I have enjoyed it. I appreciate your feedback that you gave me last week. But just in case you don't know what Stranger Things is, or just in case, okay, so we, we do have one that does not, and you know, there's life outside the rock, so come on out. Um, just in case you don't know what Netflix is. Do you know what Netflix is? Okay, good. Well, you're there. You're, you're like halfway there. That's great. Just in case you don't know what Stranger Things is, I want to read for you the description of it that I gave last week. Uh, this is from, uh, I think from Wikipedia or somewhere like that, and they're, they're always right. Very trusted source. Stranger Things is set in the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana in November of 1983. The nearby Hawkins Laboratory ostensibly performs scientific research for the United States Department of Energy, but secretly does experiments into the paranormal and supernatural, including those that involve human test subjects. Inadvertently, they have created a portal to an alternate dimension called the Upside Down. The influence of the Upside Down starts to affect the unknowing residents of Hawkins in calamitous ways. The show centers around four somewhat nerdy middle school boys who are into sci-fi, Star Wars, huge brick walkie-talkies, and role-playing games. After one particularly long gaming session, one of the boys, Will Byers, is abducted by a creature from the Upside Down. His mother, Joyce, and the town's police chief, Jim Hopper, search for Will. At the same time, a young psychokinetic girl called Eleven escapes from the laboratory and assists Will's friends, Mike, Dustin, and Lucas, in their own efforts to find Will. Is that pretty good? Those of you seen it, that's got it, right? So without tipping our hand too much that is the basic idea of stranger things now 
Like I said last week, if you were not here last week, then you're probably sitting there thinking, what on earth does that have to do with a Christmas series? What, I mean, other than stranger and manger rhyming, what really, what possible connection could there be between this sci-fi show set in the 80s and a story about Jesus' birth? How on earth could those correlate together? So, like I said last week, I'm glad you hypothetically asked the question because I've got an answer for you. The connection that I am most intrigued by from that show is the scene or the, the atmosphere, really, that is known as the, the upside down. Here is a, uh, here's a definition of the upside down right here. It is an alternate dimension existing in parallel to the human world. It contains the same locations and infrastructure as the human world, but it is much darker, colder, and obscured by an omnipresent fog. It is a corrupted and decayed form of the real world. And that last line right there, that's the one I really want us to lock into, especially for today, that the upside down is a corrupted and decayed form of the real world. That's going to, to make sense, hopefully, in just a, just a few minutes. The upside down is, is devoid of human life. Instead, it's overgrown with rupee root-like tendrils and biological membranes covering practically every surface. At least one recognizable animal, a humanoid predator, was native to this dimension, while ash-like spores floated into the air. So the connection that I see between stranger things and what we're talking about here is between the upside down and the fallen state of the world. If we've read our Bibles, and of course if you were here last week and happened to have not read your Bible, then you would have heard the story of how God created everything, right? In the beginning God created what? The heavens and the earth. And as He created, He said, it is good. Then He created man and woman, and He said, it is very good. But we know what happens. From, from looking at the story, we saw that God had created this place of beauty where He resides with His creation, but then sin entered and corrupted the world as God intended. Corrupted the world as God created it. So last week in chapter 1, remember because the as the series goes, they don't do it by episodes. They call it chapters. So in last week, chapter 1, beginning, we saw that God's intent for the world has not gone to plan the way He envisioned that it would. Man has sinned and brought corruption into the world. It's still God's world, only now it is a corrupted, decayed form of the real world. Does that, does that make sense? Is everybody with me? And, you, and we're grasping the metaphor of the upside down. The upside down is the fallen state. We look around and we see beauty around us, do we not? I mean, you look through these doors right now and you see the colors of fall all around us, yet 
while it is still God's world, we know that there's evil and there's injustice. We know that there's pain and suffering. We know there's prejudice. We know there's racism. We know there are horrible, horrible things that exist in the world, right? That's the upside down. That's what what sin brought into God's world. And so the upside down began to spread. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Mankind began to grow more and more corrupt. So much so that it says that God actually regretted making man. Can you imagine that? Better question, can you blame him? He regretted making man. And so the solution that God came up with was to wipe mankind from the face of the earth save for Noah and his family. And while the flood achieved the destruction of humanity, it failed to wipe out sin, greed, corruption, arrogance, and evil. The upside down lives on. And so as we saw last week, chapter 1 beginning, it closes with the world in complete chaos and confusion as God thwarts the arrogance of mankind by confusing their language at Babel. And so now, with no further delay, let's get into chapter 2, the upside down. So you will remember that I said last week, but I've also said at various times along the way, that I believe the best way to approach Scripture is as a story, as a, as a narrative. Now, it does have rules for living. It does offer guidance. And, and you know, it, it has those things in there. But I don't think the best way to approach God's Word is that way. Instead, I think we should look at it as a story wherein God is revealing who He is to all of mankind. Not only is He revealing who He is, He's revealing who His Son is. And as we have seen in in, in recent weeks, especially in our, our Wednesday night Discovery Bible study, we see who we are. God reveals who we are and who He intends us who He intends for us to be. But I think the best way to read the Bible is as a story. You might even think of it as a a five-act play that God has created, invested, incarnated, poured out, and, and ultimately will consummate His drama for the sake of all the cosmos. The main actor is God, and we are, are invited to participate in the story. John Mark Hicks describes the second act, or chapter for our purposes, in this way. Act 2 is Israel. God graciously entered into covenant with a people who were called to represent or image God in the brokenness of the ancient Near East. 
God graciously initiates a relationship through the call of Abraham, grounds that relationship in redemptive acts seen at the Exodus, and invites them to live as the light among the nations. Now that's very important. The story of Israel is a story of a people struggling to live lives as the images of God in a fallen world. The covenant of love that binds them to God guides them in living out God's intent for His creation in the situatedness of the idolatrous ancient Near East. God's pursuit of Israel, God's investment in their lives, and God's guidance for life in the world is a model for believers. A way to listen to God's story, God's values, intents, goals, desires. And to learn from Israel's example both positive and negative. God, in His infinite wisdom, allowed His creation to die as an act of mercy. Because sin and corruption entered the world, God could not stand for His creation, His creatures, His beings, to live forever in a fallen, corrupted state. And so as an act of mercy, God allows them to die. He cuts off access from the tree of life that as long as they ate of that fruit, they would live on forever. But now they've sinned and they have fallen, and if they have access to that tree of life, they will live forever in a sinful, corrupted state. And so Eastern Orthodox theology says that that is an act of mercy. That God will not allow humanity to go on living that way, corrupted for all time. So He allows them them to die and He enacts another plan. He banishes them from the garden. But even, even then, He longed to be in relationship with His creation. And so he began calling them to himself. So as we saw from last week, the world was a mess. It was in complete chaos. Pagan nations had begun to abound all over. Pagan worship and ritual and sacrifice was spreading rapidly. When God taps a spry 75-year-old guy from the land of Ur for a mission. Look at Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you i will make your name great and you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and i will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you flip over to chapter 15 you have god just showing up all of a sudden and talking to abram He's this guy that's living out in the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans, which, you know, who on earth knows where that is? 
Okay, it's over by the Euphrates River, just in case you were wondering. Okay, but he's just there hanging out in Ur. And God says, hey, I got a job for you. He says, I want you to leave everything you've ever known, everything about your existence. I want you to leave that behind, and I want you to come with me, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. Anybody in here ever had a chance to form their own nation? No? And chances are pretty good you probably won't. Okay, hopefully you will never form your own nation. Let me restate that. I'm pretty sure nobody wants to go to the United States of Jason. Okay? I'm not even sure I want to be there. Alright? But this is what he calls Abraham to do. And he's 75 years old. He's a spring chicken. And so he's talking with God. And he's got this other relative who is not really his heir, but it is a relative. And he's saying to God, hey, God, here's this guy. He's my heir, but, you know, make, you know could this work? And then in, in, in chapter 15, verse 4, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to him, this is to Abram, and said, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look at the sky and, and, and count the stars. If you're able to count them, your offspring will be that numerous. God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham. This old guy with no offspring and promises to make him into a great nation. Now, I don't know about you, but that is strange. Yes? That is strange. You want to read something about something even stranger? Read the rest of that chapter. Because there's a flaming fire pot and there's a torch and there's an animal cut in half and those things pass right through the middle. What's that about? It's strange. But it's God's presence being represented as they pass through the, the cut animal they made a deal, a relationship. They entered into an agreement. That's where we get the term to cut a deal. God and Abraham entered into a covenantal relationship right here. This nation, this nation that is going to be so great, that is going to be more numerous than all of the stars in the sky is to be the light of all mankind pointing all other nations to Jehovah God. Isaiah 49 says this, I will make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what God had planned. This is God's design for His nation. His nation that is going to shine the light into the upside down is going to point to something Better. This is His plan. And so God keeps His covenant. And He forms Abraham's nation. And He calls it Israel. And just like God, just like He said, just like God said, He made Israel into a great nation. And they grew and they grew and grew. But in time, a famine hit the land. 
But it's heard that one of God's representatives is down in Egypt and he's the number two guy in command. And he has this plan and they have been storing up food and he's opening the doors to refugees. And so Israel, God's people, become this word that we don't like so much these days, refugees in Egypt. And they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow. Then Joseph dies. Then the Pharaoh dies, who does not know Joseph or God or, or Joseph's God. And they begin to looking around and they see this nation that is indwelling their land and they're saying if they keep growing they're going to overrun us they are going to take our land away from us and so they enslave israel and they treat them unmercifully but then god raises up powerful leaders like moses and aaron and joshua to lead them he leads them, they lead them out. They begin taking the land that was promised to them from, from, from God. They begin to be the light that God intends them to be. But the book of Judges tells us that those leaders died. And a new generation arose who didn't know God. And so what happens is Israel turned to idolatry. They embrace the upside down again. And so God raises up judges who saved them, but it says that they didn't listen to them. Instead, they looked at the surrounding nations and they became envious. And they told Samuel, the prophet Samuel, that they wanted something more. Listen to this from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel is, is, is an old prophet. He's appointed judges. He's appointed his sons. But his sons are not living the way they're supposed to. They're not following God's laws. And so the elders, all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Look, you are old. Ouch. And your sons don't walk in your ways. Therefore, now pay attention to this because this is really, really important. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. Appoint a king. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. God says, give them what you want, give them what they want. They think they know, but they don't have a clue. And so then Samuel begins to warn them. He says, do you realize what you're asking for? I don't think you do. Because you're going to be giving up something that no one else has. 
you're looking around and you're seeing all these other nations that have kings and you think that's great when what is really great is what you have because God, Jehovah, is your king. If you have a king, he's going to take your sons and he's going to force them into the army. And he's going to take your daughters and he's going to force them to serve in the palace. And he's going to take a tenth of your money and a tenth of your flocks and a tenth of your grain and he's going to tax you and tax you and tax you. That's what's coming if you ask for a king. But they kept asking. And then Israel, because they want to be like everybody else, forfeits their distinctiveness. Forfeits what set them apart. They're supposed to be the light. They're supposed to be the one that lead all people. They're supposed to be God's means for salvation. And now they're saying, we want to be like everybody else. Verse 18 says, when that day comes, this is Samuel talking to them, when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. A king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. So God did. He allowed them to have a king, several kings actually. And it started out pretty good. First king Saul started out good, but then he made some blunders along the way. And we find in Scripture for the second time, only the second time in the Bible, where it says God regretted. He regretted that he made Saul king. Removed Saul from the throne and then comes David. And David was pretty good he, he had some pretty big blunders too i mean that whole bathsheba thing's pretty bad you know you don't <laughs> you can't exactly cover that one up but then there was solomon and he started out okay but he didn't end up real well and then what happens is you just have this succession of kings the nation divides and you got a few kings that were pretty good and some that were good but mostly Mostly they were pretty bad, and the Bible tells us that many of these kings ended up doing what was evil in the Lord's eyes. And they led Israel further and further and further and deeper and deeper into the upside down. And so God raised up messengers or, or prophets to warn Israel to change their ways, to turn back to God. And, and, and sometimes they did, but mostly they did not. Nehemiah Chapter 9 says this, But they, Israel, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. You see, Israel's longing 
Israel's longing, when you really back up and take a minute and look at the story, you see that for a time, Israel's longing is for the upside down. They don't want the things of God. They want a king. They want to be just like every other nation. They chose to stop being the light. They longed for the upside down, the twisted and corrupt place outside of God's intention. And so once again, God granted their wish. But you know how it goes. You ever want something really, really bad only to find out it was not what you thought it was? Or want something really, really bad only to find out it was way too much to handle? Or you bit off more than you could chew? That's exactly what happened to Israel. Look at Jeremiah 53, 52 rather. On the 10th day of the 5th month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, he burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guards tore down all the walls surrounding Jerusalem. That's what happened when they chose their way. Even though God's way is pretty strange. They wanted to be like everybody else, and so they did. But the problem is, they forgot that they were supposed to be the light. They forgot that they were supposed to be the one that pointed all the other nations to God. They were going to be the ones that were to reveal God to everybody else, but they forgot that. And they plunged themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into into the upside down. And that is why you have a psalm like Psalm 137. Because the Babylonians brutally oppressed Israel. So it says that they sat down by the river in Babylon and they wept. When their captors asked for songs, they couldn't bring themselves to sing their songs. That's why you have those very tough words to digest at the end of that psalm that says, happy is the one whose little ones are dashed against the rocks. All because they forgot what they were supposed to be doing. All because they chose the upside down instead of the, the strange plan of God. But remember how I said that God allowed Adam and Eve to die as an act of mercy. And he couldn't stand for his creation to dwell forever in a fallen and corrupt state. Well, death wasn't the only act of God's mercy. You see, even, even though Israel had gone off into the rails, deep into the upside down, God wasn't content to let them be obliterated. To let the nation of Israel that He created so long ago with Abram, He wasn't, he wasn't willing for them to be annihilated there. Ezekiel 
6 and Micah 2 say this about the remnant. Yet I will leave a remnant when you are scattered among the nations. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob, another name for Israel. I will collect, I will collect the remnant of Israel. God left something. He left a a remnant, a small group of Israel through which he would enact some stranger things that are all pointing to somewhere, to someone off in the distance. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, Bethlehem. Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you. To be ruler over Israel for me, his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. What Micah is saying, and what Matthew would later write down, is that a new David is going to arise from Bethlehem. A new David is going to arise for Israel and he will rule the nations and his kingdom will endure forever. Matthew interprets this verse right here as a messianic prophecy, as words pointing to the coming of the Messiah. But for now, For now, Israel must patiently wait through 400 years of silence. I hope you'll join us next week for chapter 3. Let's pray together.